The seminar starts now. Welcome to The Seminar, a podcast from the Center for Cultural Analysis at Rutgers University. My name is Nicholas Glastonbury, and I'm broadcasting from New Brunswick, New Jersey. Our guest today is Dr. Daphne Brooks. Dr. Brooks came to CCA recently to discuss her book, Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. Liner Notes is a tour de force of a book. It has won just so many awards from both within and beyond the Academy, and deservingly so. More than a history, it is a history of improbable histories, a study of the ways in which black women's musicking has been both central to and marginalized within modern American culture. Quiet as it's kept, the book opens, black women of sound have a secret. Theirs is a history unfolding on other frequencies, while the world adores them and yet mishears them, celebrates them and yet ignores them, heralds them and simultaneously devalues them. Theirs is a history that is nonetheless populated with revolutionaries. Theirs is a history of the utopic and the transformative, the strange and the strategically unruly. Theirs is a history of game-changing art that stands as an affirmation of our past as well as the unrecorded future of sound, that which is booming in the not yet, the place where all those sisters of the yam are running us straight into the dawn. The cast of characters that populates liner notes sprawls across nearly 150 years of black women's musicking. From Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith to Nina Simone and Odetta, from Mahalia Jackson and Abby Lincoln to Janelle Monet, Nicki Minaj, and Beyonce. In tracing the connective tissue among these artists, Liner Notes also excavates a subterranean tradition of black women's music criticism, animating an intellectual and musical history under erasure by a white supremacist culture industry. Against this, she tracks musicians and artists in the present who are actively attuning their work to these silenced histories, curating, in her words, a soundtrack for the marginalized and the forgotten, the overlooked and the under-theorized. I don't want to take up too much more time, I think we'd all rather hear from Daphne Brooks, but the last thing worth mentioning has to do with the genre of liner notes from which the book takes its title. Think of the liner notes that accompany an LP record. What is a liner note and what does it do? Brooks herself is no stranger to the genre having written liner notes for albums by Prince, Aretha Franklin, and Nina Simone. Emerging as a genre in the middle of the 20th century, the liner notes that accompanied LP records were spaces, in Brooks's words, for literary and analytic experimentation. Brooks says that they walk a fine line between pedagogy and socialization, between socio-historical and cultural reportage and heuristic conditioning. The most ambitious of them strive toward the narrative realization or narrative imagining of a sonic collection of songs altogether. So, with this in mind, Liner Notes the book 
ought to be thought of as a narrative realization of the possible histories and futures of black feminist sound and music. So I've said now in various contexts, when people used to ask me what Lantern for, for the Revolution was about, because so I was finishing working on it, there was a lot of questions. <laughs> when is this coming out and what is it? Um, it became useful to respond with a question. So I'd say this, um, think of a sweeping, comprehensive, decade-spanning history of black women in popular, um, popular music culture. The book that I'm writing is not that book, right? right? <laughs> this is not that, as my wonderful colleague Shane Vogel has put it in his brilliant book on Calypso, by the way, on Shane Vogel's um, Stolen Time. This is not that. that. So um, this book, my book, I'd say to my inquisitor, um, is the reason why you're probably having trouble coming up with the title, A Sweeping History of Black Women in Popular Music Culture, A Mystery Train for the Sisters, can't find it. So Lighter Notes is in part a story of why that book hasn't been written. Um, although really beautiful moment, Lighter Notes comes out, we have a whole cluster of titles by thinkers who are quite special to me and who've done such great work in the field. People like Maureen Mann's Black Diamond Queens and um, you know, Gail Wald was doing It's Been Beautiful. She's finishing a book on Alice Shepard right now, the Black feminist um, children's music pioneer. Um, there was, gosh, uh, Danielle Smith's um, Shine Bright, the great black feminist journalist. So we're really in a renaissance of um, black feminist music writing. But for the bulk of the time I was writing liner notes, I'm like, try and come up with the title. Um, so crucially, this book is also the story of what black women musicians as well as um, the feminist thinkers and critics who loved them and love and affection and intimacy for music is a very important um, kind of line of thinking and a trope that I work through in the book. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a narrative and interrogation of a study of a meditation on those thinkers and creatives who loved them as well. In spite of this kind of lack of full-scale intellectual interest in black women's music, um, in, in, in hegemonic culture. It's a story about what they did to look after their music, these thinkers and creatives, um, to look after their groundbreaking performance practices, look after Pace, my dear and wonderful um, interlocutor, Kara Keeling's theories on looking after and being a steward um, of archives and music. Um, so I was thinking about that and about what it means for um, this kind of minor figures, Pace, Hartman, um, in the archive and what they were doing um, to do kind of quotidian archiving um, when institutions um, were not showing um, these path-breaking artists any love. Um, it's the story of how feminist artists and intellectuals articulated the value of black women's musicianship when cultural institutions and critics and collectors and other powerful gatekeepers um, showed little interest in affirming the depths and complexities of their aesthetic labor. Labor is another key word that I really wrestled with a lot in this book. And one of the early guiding questions that I set out to answer when I first started working on the book was essentially, was essentially this query which on the surface really seems like a simple question, but in my mind, it's really anything, anything but. And the question is this, if you were to point to a moment 
that marks the advent, the beginning of contemporary popular music culture, where would it be? So this was usually, you know, in bars, <laughs> be having these kinds of debates with um, dudes. <laughs> usually, they were dudes. Um, you know, and it, so then it would, you know, you'd get answers like this, right? Um, and um, you know, to our, our other, uh, the Robert Johnson, um, and you know, certainly we have revisionist historians who've um, importantly reminded us um, to look here, um, absolutely, and to look here, absolutely. Um, but the question that I kind of I felt like sort of shifted the urgency, the tone of the book, um, the ethical imperatives of the book was to try to answer what happens if we tell the story of popular music culture as we come to know and feel it and experience it today by instead um, starting with the catastrophe of 1619. Um, and, you know, just as well, what if we were to center the ideas, the feelings, observations, desires um, of the sisters who were the descendants of those in the hold um, and out in the field and um, confined to the kitchen, right? Um, what if we actively kept that history front and center in, you know, our readings of Black women's um, musicianship um, and really tried to try to kind of stage a sort of dialectical meditation um, that's both materially contextual but also um, you know ideologically interested um, in the catastrophe um, of anti-blackness in the so-called new world um, if you can keep that that history present and urgent in your engagement with the music, then what are the other kinds of stories we can extrapolate about not just the aesthetics, but the um, the quotidian challenges that these artists faced um, in the recording industry, on um, the stage and live performance, in their collaborations and um, battles with other musicians. So Black women's musicianship across the centuries, um, being able to think about how it took into account the socioeconomic, the material, the psychic conditions that undergird Black women's artistry is something really important to me. Important to me. How would that um, affect the nature of what we valued about their music? Um, how we narrated their worth value being another keyword, how we interpreted the work of the music itself as an archive of historical memory, an archive of affective relationship with historical memory, a multifaceted mode of both social critique and social intimacies. The music can, we know, do all that. Frederick Douglass has told us so. Um, so I lived with this project through the years and what became clearer and clearer to me is that the thing that I was ultimately after was shaped, of course, by centuries of violence, systemic inequities, the enormity of chronic loss and marginalization. Um, that was, of course, always a part of what I was after and being able to capture the story of the magnitude, the scale of what Black women's musicianship is meant to American culture, but also is interested in how our writing about popular music culture might do a better job of trying to engage with all that just just a little bit right mm -hmm. um so you know i mentioned a moment ago i, I was always determined that 
determined to tell a story, a story that was not just about, um, had to be a story of not just all the young dudes carrying the news, um, many of whom I call my friends, mentors, my collaborators, interlocutors, my critical sparring partners. Um, so it couldn't just be about the critics who'd mishandled black women's musicianship across time, although they were really important to this play. Um, but it had to be equally about the nearly wholly overlooked history of black women culture makers and performers and writers and activists, like the figures who um, we're seeing right now, neighborhood folk, family members. My mother, Juanita, who passed away last year on Toni Morrison's birthday, and I write about them kind of alongside each other in the book. So that was, um, you know, my mother goes out big. That's 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 my that's my mom. Um, so I want to be able to do all that um, to to think about that and to kind of to do something with scale in terms of trying to work across um, the modern so-called modern century and trying to pick apart um, this this narrative, this, this history, this story. So at its core liner notes for the revolution is the story of why and how black women musicians across 20th, 21st centuries have been and remain essential architects of popular music culture. It's probably obvious from the book. Um, and it's a book about why these artists um, fundamentally matter in the making of our modern world and how we navigate that world. That was kind of the mantra that I used as I was um, wrapping up writing it. One thing to note about Brooks as a scholar, which you might have already noticed, is that she is unusually keen to cite those other scholars and writers who have shaped her work. She places herself in intellectual lineage to scholars and critics who have come before her, not unlike the ways in which the musicians she describes consciously fashion themselves as inheritors and curators of the black women musicians and critics who came before them. Brooks contends that while these black women artists and musicians have made the modern world through their craft, they are, on the other hand, keenly aware of how they have been absented from the story of modernity. They exist, as Brooks writes, at the fringe and yet at the center of the culture industry. In the book, she asks, as to those women who were ensnared in other people's criticism or who were bound for any number of reasons to archives that often brutally and carelessly rendered them as objects rather than subjects of their own making, how often have we considered the ways that their music created the conditions for crafting other ways of inhabiting the world? These artists faced what Brooks describes as a catastrophe of erasure that animates the archival politics around their musicking. And the book is as much an attempt to chronicle their genius and virtuosity against this erasure as it is a critical fabulation through the archival absences in order to produce fugitive imaginaries that might ultimately shed light on the affordances of black women's music. In order to grapple with this aporia, Brooks divides the book in two halves, side A and side B, rather like an LP record. The disaster of the West, as it, you know, is rooted in um, anti-blackness, you know, the Cedric Robinson way of understanding this, right, is that, you know, um, the production of, you know, anti-blackness, you know, is are the seeds of, of the modern. 
And so then it becomes a problem to say <laughs> we're all modern, right? But it's about the kind of the, the ability to, to take the thing you, that denies you, right? And to live inside of that denial, disassemble it and transform it. I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm like, I'm following a generation of black study scholars who've made that kind of a claim, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess I felt like it was important to think about that through a kind of um, line of sonic genealogies um, because it allows us to imagine um, a more expansive form of knowledge production um, and critical interventions in the problem and the disaster. You know, Black Studies is the study of the West, you know? Um, and if we understand the West have a lot to do with the makings of modernity, um, I say facetiously, um, then, then we, we have to also live inside of um, or reckon with, as we like to say, you know, a black studies epistemological, you know, um, approach to, um, you know, ar articulating the workings of modernity and how it works on us. So, you know, I don't want to fetishize, you know, the you know, claiming this thing, right? I wanna, I wanna live inside of and really have a sit with the violence of this. Um, this again, this is, you know, this is opening pages of in the break, you know, but it's, but it's also the, the beautiful music, you see, calls it, you know, that comes out of, you know, that violence. And deciding to divide the book up and especially to, to think in terms of the kind of the troping of the, um, the LP record, even the 45, when I was thinking in terms of the LP, I wanted to, um, I wanted to really lean into the, you know, response to the question of what kind of a book is this? And this is not a history. Um, it is trying to do something else. And so, um, you know, by dividing the book up and really concentrating in the second half on the problem of the archive and women, black women musicians as archivists, um, it was, um, sort of meant to create a conversation with the first half and the kinds of the very important biographical work. I felt like it was very important to do, especially around people like Rosetta Wrights who'd been, you know, left out of blues histories and, you know, um, rethinking Zora um, and, you know, being able to give Lorraine Hansberry all her flowers as a genius, you know, cultural critic, right? And so there's a way that the kind of, you know, um, scholarly profile and intellectual biographies of um, these figures was not going to be able to capture everything that I wanted to say about the violence of the archive um, that, you know, has produced this kind of chronic marginalization of, um, you know, black black feminist um, 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 imaginative and inventive and avant-garde practices in popular music culture, especially the Carrie Mae Weems, you know, section of the book was so important to me to kind of find a visual language 
to get at both the feelings of um, grief and anxiety around um, the ephemerality of um, Black women's musician musicianship um, in relation to the historical record, and um, that could they could also hold a space for um, being able to kind of think about and question, especially in the archivist chapters in, in chapter eight, just how those figures that I'm focusing on kind of thought about the urgencies of you know their charge to be able to do not always recovery work, which we always want to problematize that, but to speak to the the crisis of ephemerality. So that that her work was just tremendously important to me, and also that the "If You Should Lose Me," which which became you know the chapter um, title, one of the chapter titles. That's her title for that piece. And it just, something just, it sparked something in me because it was, it's such a, it's just striking lyrical kind of formulation um, to open up a kind of request, a charge that's rooted in the potentiality of one's own disappearance. And that was just part of the spirit of the side B section of the book, to really live in the space of um, urgency around archival violence, archival erasure, and the magnitude of what these musicians were doing to speak back to that emergency. So that side B is um, the kind of way of framing the experimental phenomenon you know, of black feminist musicking um, and to really, you know, hold a space around that since, you know, the simplest formulation, you know, experimental, you know, experimental black black woman musician is not something that is uttered as much as it should be. Um, so I want to be able to kind of trace that, you know, and think of it as the kind of the secret tracks that you may not pay attention to, but we should. One grain of sand One grain of sand But what is it that makes this book a book about Black feminist music rather than Black women's music? Brooks's reading of these artists and musicians suggests that we ought not to consider black women's musicking as merely soundtracks to or prefigurations of social movements, but as acts of theory themselves. What is black feminist music, you know, right? I think it's important to be able to, to name the form as doing the kind of social, political, intellectual work that, you know, that one can experience because it's the form that is, you know, conjuring these desires in us, these questions, these ideas, right? These these new formations, right? Um, because of course we can go down the the Beyonce rabbit hole, you know, of like debating what black feminism means to her, and you know, the late Bell Hooks had strong feelings about that, right? But you know, I always go back to um, to Ellen Willis's essay, which is, you know, I talk about in liner notes, 
um, um, where she's writing about the Sex Pistols. And she's writing about um, bodies, and she's writing about how it's 1977, and all of her, you know, rock critic colleagues are just all over the Sex Pistols, and she is like, you know, having a visceral reaction to their misogyny. And then she realized that there was something about the music itself that she felt that could, she didn't have the language for it, right? But could run fugitive, right? Of its own misogyny, right? That there was something formalistic, right? About punk to her that could hold all of these other, um, you know, political and social possibilities, right? You know, I think about that with regards to how we can sort of understand the phenomenon of black feminist musicking, right? Um, that could both be, you know, a vision and intent of, you know, ostensibly Beyonce has argued that about her music, right? But it could also be, you know, something that holds life within it um, by way of, you know, the crowd, the fan, you know, the archivist, right? Who's doing something with that music, that equipment for living as, you know, our, our dear one Allison would put it by way of Kenneth Burke. So. So that's how I kind of think about it. Up above my head, I hear music in the air. Up above my head, there is music in the air. Up above my head, music in the air. And I really do believe... One of the crucial figures in liner notes is anthropologist and author Zora Neale Hurston who collected field recordings of black folklore and song in Florida and wrote extensively of black cultural life in the American South. Though her work was woefully underappreciated in her own lifetime, Erston has had an enduring and indeed growing impact over the past several decades, due in no small part to the work of scholars like Brooks in black studies. In liner notes, Erston's work and life are as much objects of study as they are models of the kind of work Brooks is doing with this book. Brooks writes of Hurston, She was working to, in effect, write an audible past as well as an archaic text of knowledge to come for the women who, like her, saw fit to wander. This sentence, to me, reads almost like a thesis of liner notes as a whole, and Brooks pays profound homage to Hurston's trailblazing scholarship accordingly. I mean, the Zora, um, you know, I'm going to do this a lot, depending on how long we're here. But well, I was thinking in terms, we think in terms of the ensemble. Thank you to, you know, um, Black, Black radical tradition jazz studies. And I just feel very lucky to be part of a moment where we have a new Zora studies, you know, moment um, that is, you know, built, you know, on the shoulders of all the, you know, sisters, Alice and everybody else who, who brought her back to us. But, um, you know, if you think of the work of Alex Vasquez and Sonia Posmentier and Anthea Kraut and Autumn Womack, and, um, it's just, it's a very exciting time. Um, Roshi Kashi is doing work on Zoran film as well. A, a very exciting time to really be leaning into Zora the polymath, right? And mm -hmm. I have to give all thanks for the Zora piece of this project to Glenda Carpio and Verna Solers. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my first year I was on the Radcliffe just beginning to work on this book. And, you know, Glenda, you know, great scholar of um, black comedy studies, you know, sends me this very sly email 
that says, you know, how do you feel about Zora singing? And I was like, what? What? What are you talking about? And she sent me the, the link to the Smithsonian. I had no idea that there was a link at the time. I thought you still had to go to the archives to listen. And um, she and Ferner were doing a special collection on Zora um, for this International American Studies Journal. And um, they asked me just to listen to the tracks and see what I came up with. Don't have to exactly remember who I, who did teach it to me, but I learned it from the crowd, most exactly, most from one. You may leave and go to Highland Mofag, but my slow drag will bring you back. Well, you may go, but this will bring you back. And thinking about them as, you know, as a kind of, um, you know, multifarious, heterogeneous intellectual project that she was engaged in, you know, writing and recording, writing and recording. And if you could sort of think about the pace of that, maybe you could sort of, you know, approximate a kind of energy around just what it means for all of us as interdisciplinary scholars to be you know, on the move and piecing together, um, you know, our creative slash intellectual work. A hoodoo, a hoodoo, a hoodoo wagging. My heels all popping and my toenails cracking. Well, you may go, but this will bring you back. I think, uh, you know, I'm interested in the hubris of her performance. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there's, the performance is deeply overlaid with um, all of the idiosyncrasies of who Zora is, right? Um, the there's a there's a, a sharp wit. There's a real kind of you know interpretive skill in terms of oh, her so sort of deep engagement with the material. And then right contextually, she's performing for our fellow WPA workers out in the field. It's both yeah. because she's like I'm I am I am here for the people, right? Yeah. But I'm the people, right. <laughs> right? I mean, right? She's the conduit, but it's still, you know, this kind of vocal performance that also is about, you know, in terms of especially this Bosian, you know, ethnographic moment about, you know, the, the quotidian um, ways in which, you know, the collector can approximate the, the feeling of the folk. Sonnet Ratman writes about this in her excellent book, um, Real Folks. But, you know, there's a way, you know, her being un an untrained vocalist is very important. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the character of her, you know, um, her timbre, you know, it's all very particular to being both, you know, representative of, you know, the project that she, gave her life to, you know, which was trying to excavate, you know, black vernacular life. Mm -hmm. And it was also about the specificity of her own, you know, you know, really rigorous and sophisticated interpretive skills as a, as a budding anthropologist, mm -hmm. not even budding, like, like deeply yeah. trained at that point by 34. Um, but they were, there was a, you know, this very specific charge that they had a number of days to work in Jacksonville. Um, you know, to collect folk material, 
I don't know why I scare quoted that because it was, they were, I'm well, I guess because the collecting phenomenon was also about memory work, right? And it was about, you know, there were all, you know, there was technological recording. I write about it in the book. She had this like big clunky, you know, machine that she was using. Um, but she was also, you know, working with the embodied practice of performance. I mean, it was all about being unvarnished. It was kind of spectacularly unvarnished, right? Because that was part of the principles of, you know, the folk being the counter narrative to concertized spirituals. I don't know why I'm scare quoting that. That was a real thing. But she, so she, it was, you know, the, the project was to be able to, you know, archive what she did not believe to be, you know, a dying form. Tumor did, of course, right? But she, she, but she did. It was it was the kind of interventionist work and knowledge production about black life we know in mm -hmm. terms of Zora studies. And so that was there is a kind of I keep using this word, but an ethics to her strategy of singing. She probably also couldn't hold a note from right, what we right. can tell. But it was that was part of the project. And again, Sonnet Ratman has another piece. This is part of what she's working on this, this amazing book about sound recording in Harlem Renaissance. And she's got an, an essay, I'll try and pull it up, about where she was able to unearth some things in the archive that showed that Zora was actually trying to make a blues record, even mm -hmm. though she had publicly been on the record critiquing the blues. So, you know, she was always, you know, working all the angles. She was a hustler, hustler baby. So, you know, but this is, this is the Zora that was trying to you know, speak back to the industry that she felt was, you know, completely at odds with the richness of, you know, black vernacular life that she's documenting and theorizing and characteristics of Negro expression. Across liner notes, Brooks interpolates herself and her own family histories into the story of black feminist sound over the 20th century. The book is dedicated to her mother Juanita Brooks and to her aunt Lodell Matthews, and both her mother and her aunt appear in images in the book. One page even features a portrait of her mother alongside a portrait of Toni Morrison, a diptych that she characterizes as the dual compasses that dare her to inhabit a writerly space of critical fabulation and speculative theorizing. Pairing each of their biographies, Brooks situates her mother in the social world of Toni Morrison's novel Jazz, itself a work Morrison based on her own mother's memories of girlhood in the 1920s. Treating the mutually constitutive relationship between black music and black sociality at the moment of jazz's emergence, the novel is, in Brooks's reading, an invitation to unearth a broader, richer history like that of my mother's, which conveys more about how and in what ways blues records were heard, owned, shared between, and loved by black girls and young women in the times in which they were made. It's on this basis that Brooks theorizes the centrality of record shops and other spaces of listening as sites for the formation of knowledge, theory, and play that enlivened and expanded the possibilities for black women's lives against the backdrop of Jim Crow America. My mother, God rest her soul. She, uh, she was 96 years young when she passed, as I mentioned, just a total spitfire. 
And for her 90th birthday party, it was a huge gala in downtown Palo Alto. She wore a tiara and everything, right? And ahead of time, of course, as academics in our family, it's like, you know, Daph, make sure you do the oral history with mom. I'm like, okay, you know, right? So we spent like a month of phone calls. There was a trip home um, where I, you know, was piecing together all of these things, these stories that I hadn't ever heard. Um, in spite of the fact that I thought I knew so much about her, it's always true of our parents. My dad had passed on 20 years before. And so it was just a different snapshot of her younger life that she was giving to me. And I paused for a minute right now because I was thinking about how I was both um, so delighted and also infuriated to find out that she'd spent so much time in record stores because my parents gave me hell for the amount of time that I spent at Tower Records. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Um, so, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a wonderful opportunity and honor to be able to meet her in the moment of her youth and to find out how precious the music was to her in, you know, building these... Um, you know, lines of sociality with other girls in her neighborhood. Um, and also, you know, the cultural historian, black studies scholar in you thinks about what it meant for her to go into Beasley's um, record store in Texarkana, Texas at the height of Jim Crow. And to, to as she put it, feel very, very much invited into that space welcome but also there's something so intriguing about those listening booths which mm -hmm. you know for those of us who do pop music history we know about the listening booths in record stores and just to sort of imagine what kind of um public privacy you know that enabled these young black girls you know to to get their music on put their records on as corinne mm -hmm. bailey ray would say yeah. it was very important to me to model, I mean, this is learned from my mentor, Barbara Christian, my mentor, Valerie Smith, but to model the knowledges of, you know, the, 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 the women in our familial networks and the ways in which, you know, their everyday theorizing, as Barbara puts it, and the race for theory were models for me to kind and, and that inform you know, my vernacular prose, but also the kinds of questions that drive the book. And that's why also at the beginning of the book, there are the images of my Aunt Lodi, who I found out, you know, when I was a faculty member at Princeton, right after she died, that there's a whole folder of photographs of her in the Huntington, because she, you know, we knew this very well about her, and but didn't know about the photographs that she, um, went from working on the shipyards with my uncle Ernie after it migrated from Arkansas to the Bay Area during World War II and sent money home to my dad and my other aunt so they could finish undergrad. And then my dad comes out for grad school at Berkeley with my mom like married. But she soon took up work doing domestic work for all these like major professors at Berkeley, including Kenneth Stamp, who's like an early black studies, you know, Jewish black studies scholar, right? Yeah. Um, and there's an archaeologist, Otis Marston, whose like house is on a historical trail in Berkeley that she she worked with the Marstons and went on all these archaeological digs with him. And when my aunt died, Marston's kids were at a Princeton reunion and came and found me. 
and wow. they had photographs of the photographs in the archive and they're like you need to go and look at these wow. and they were like crying about my aunt and everything you know and I mean my aunt was incredible but I I guess I my mom and my mother were very different people but they 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 each embody some of the values and concerns and questions that drive liner notes. My aunt was a real like adventure seeker um, and a digger, which I talk about in the in the closing acknowledgments. And um, you know, my mother was a, a teacher who had you know a black middle class you know sensibility, but both were you know interested in their own self invention and mobilization which you know all black folks are to some extent and i want to hold the space for each of them so yeah 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 but we're all daughters of morrison and i'll say too just to add to this i was talking to our colleague jennifer brody the great jennifer brody at stanford and i was saying to her it was the summer after the book came out and i said well you know i mean it's funny about putting mom and tony together it's a suggestion it's just, it's more than anything, it's a suggestion. You know, it's not, it's, you know, mom was a little bit older than Tony, but they're the same generation. There was some, there was a feeling that I had when I looked at those images, the same hairstyles, right? Um, there was the kind of way that I was thinking about what Morrison was doing intellectually with black girlhood and sound and jazz, um, but trying to then open up a space for considering, you know, the fullness of these biographies, you know, of my mother and Toni Morrison's generation, that we can just sit with acknowledging our narratives that we have much work to do to understand the density of what they represent. So it's the, the idea of a kind of invitation is how I was thinking about using the images in that, in that passage an invitation to imagine and speculate. It is that same invitation to imagine and speculate that drives the archival and curatorial work by the contemporary musicians that Brooks examines in side B of liner notes. Musicians like Valerie June, Rhiannon Giddens, and Cecile McLaurin-Salvant revisit the repertoires of artists' past to reanimate them and their concerns for contemporary listeners. They find in old time and blues music a kind of imminent radicalism that speaks back to the women who came before them and keeps their revolution alive for present and future generations. If Giddens, June, and Salvant can be archivists and curators of black musics, though, it is only because the women they channel were themselves also archivists and curators of the black musics of their time. Theirs is an attunement both to living and vanished histories, and to the instrument that is the body, the grain of their voices sounding against the grain of the archive. Theirs is a music that resists what Brooks calls the limiting iconicity that narrows the field of possibilities for black musical genius. The sounds that they send out into the world, to paraphrase Brooks in the present tense, insist that everything is possible. All the women folk dressed in red, the angels laid him 
Here she talks about Valerie June, whose musical experimentation plums the limits of genre and timbre. Brian Kane and I have a working group at Yale called Black Sound in the Archive, and we've brought through, you know, it, it worked out very well for me to, you know, we brought Brianna and we brought Cecile, we brought Valerie, we've also brought, you know, uh, Corinne Bailey Ray this past fall, Jason Moran, it's, it's just a, a wonderful thing. But she, I think that she specifically has sort of been interested in her adjacency, let's call it, to, um, you know, more conventional modes of black women musicians' vocality. I mean, her timbre's crazy. It's like, it's beautiful, you know, right, yeah. The day will come when you're ready Just trust Dancing on the ash to All the water cleansing rain Floating through the stratosphere and um, I, but I think that she I want to read it as having something to do with kind of thinking about what happens after when one moves away from the perfection that is so often projected onto black women's musicality right um, by way of this sort of limiting iconicity of their virtuosic skills, Whitney Houston, Super Bowl, et cetera, et cetera, right? So because she lives outside of that, I think there was a little bit of a reference to like, you know, something was something was exploded, something fell apart and something as you're suggesting came together after that falling apart, yeah. So that's an interesting line of inquiry to continue to take up the vocal failure. We were talking about it in my I'm teaching an undergrad version of Black Sound in the Archive right now. Um, first time I've done it as a class as opposed to a working group. And of course, we started with Abby Lincoln and Triptych and some, you know, had the famous passages and in the break. And we talked for a long time about the, the my students, my undergrads were really freaked out about her, you know, Abby Lincoln very famously, you know, in some ways ruined her vocals, right? <laughs> of course she didn't. It becomes, she becomes Abby Lincoln of, you know, the even more experimental, you know, um, version of Abby Lincoln. There's a passage in the book that is 100% indebted to, I mean, there are many passages, 100% indebted to Fred Moden. And Fred is like had a, he's, I don't even know where anything is anymore. It's just all, it's the rolling ensemble that is Moden study. So, um, and he had, and he always, for those of us who know him, right, he's always, he's always writing. And so there was, at one point he wrote something and he sent it to me. And I think by the time I was in liner notes, it had appeared in a lot of different ways. But originally, I think I cited it as the the unpublished thing that he'd written about exhaustion, right? It's about like about when the performer exhausts the instrument and what comes after the the line of exhaustion. I think he's written about it a lot. I think it might even have been an in the break, but then it came up again and other. And for me, it was very helpful when I was writing about Aretha because I was interested in her, um, her, her work as a pianist in relation to her work as a vocalist and the kind of, you know, um, tensions and um, there's like these couple of German performance uh, performances. She did some concerts in 69 um, and 
you know, the clips are of her doing Natural Woman, um, and also uh, Never Loved a Man. And, you know, she is actually doing the thing that people forgot about until they saw her, David Rimnick sees her at, you know, like everybody else at Kennedy Center. It's like, oh my God, she's also a pianist. I'll write a New Yorker piece about that. Anyways, that's fine, you know, good for him. But that, you know, that was always something that was so integral to how she, um, in, in my mind, a lot of people's minds sort of built up this kind of just, um, you know, base of of power in her vocalizing um, that then, you know, runs profligate, as Moden would put it, you know, through the all of the different ways that she, you know, um, reimagined and revolutionized the melisma in popular music culture, right? But there's a that kind of the 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 continuum between what she did as a pianist and what she was doing vocally. Um, Fred, I feel like it was helping me to think about the the the, the kind of space of improvisation that allows for that fluidity and it comes for him at the point of exa exhaustion and the and then the aretha performances there's a, quite a bit of sweat which margot jefferson writes about very beautifully in her most recent book in relation to ella fitzgerald um, but i was interested in the sweat jason king has written about sweat in relation to james brown sweat as um as a sign of um pushing to the limits and beyond the limits but it's about the work that she was doing on, you know, with the instrument and then beyond the instrument. It's just, just kind of you're trying, you're, you're reaching for this space that you're, um, that is not to be reached. It's just, it's in the reaching that you are able to continue, you know, creating these sort of modes of radical aesthetics something experimental can come through that you know that failure right and that that ruining that's not a ruining it's just it's an opening out i feel like it's a little bit of a runs parallel to the these kinds of examples of exhaustion and you know what fred is imagining comes after you expect your musical body um, to be able to do no more something comes after that Life is a school, less you're a fool, but the learning brings... Exhausting the instruments, reaching the limits of the body, these are performative practices through which, as Brooks puts it after Fred Moten, black musicians become conduits to reanimate and rewrite black folks' long history of being used as an instrument by dominant culture in order to improvise a brand new thing. Toward the end of Side B, Brooks discusses the jazz musician Cecile McLaurin-Salvant, who traffics in the archives of music's past in which black women were not exactly the protagonists. In Brooks's theorization, Salvant gets up close and personal with the patriarchy, inhabiting misogynistic and racist songs in order to stage a heist and steal these songs about black women's criminality and black women's erotic woman-to-woman self-actualization out of the hands of the men who originated them, in order to reclaim the fugitive life imminent in that musicking, to sound the unheard life of black women in the past. 
Through Salvant's performances, Brooks writes, the tyranny of their stolen time is laid to waste. Yeah, she's really, she's a real one, as Ayoa Debe would say. Mm-hmm. Just about. She's just like, um, she's astonishing. And it actually, I'm so glad you brought her up because she's another example of, you know, durational, you know, kind of aesthetics. And I write about her, her um, unbelievable performance rereading of Murder Ballad. Um, and that is really that, you know, it's in the book, but we went to Lincoln Center. She didn't tell anyone she was going to do it in the performance. We knew we'd gone to a pre-concert kind of conversation with some of the curators at Jazz at Lincoln Center. And they're like, oh, yeah, we think Cecile might be doing Jelly Roll Morton's Murder Ballad. And it's like, that's a fucking 30-minute song. What are you guys are? And she did it and you know and it's also laden with you know racial epithets and it's sexually graphic and sexual and um, graphic and violence and it's unbelievable it's just like you are just living inside of something in a way that it transmogrifies and its meanings and through her just bottomless vocal prowess I mean she's just always inviting us to stay with the trouble she's the conjurer right of you know the trouble in relation to our humanity that was daphne brooks and that's our show Daphne Brooks is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of African American Studies, American Studies, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Music at Yale University. She's the author of three books, Jeff Buckley's Grace from the 33 and a Third series, Bodies in Descent, Spectacular Performances of Race and Freedom, 1850-1910, and of course, Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. Please, please do yourself a favor and go get yourself a copy of Liner Notes. It is a dazzling achievement and a marvelous read. Check out the show notes for a link to the book, as well as links to Zora Neale Hurston's recordings at the Library of Congress and to a playlist I put together for the book. The seminar is a production of the CCA at Rutgers University. Episodes are produced, edited, and mixed by me, Nicholas Glastonbury. Our theme music is by Aldous Ignite. This episode featured music by Jamila Woods, Odetta, Nina Simone, Rosetta Tharp, Zora Neale Hurston, 
LV Thomas and Geechee Wiley, Abby Lincoln, Valerie June, Rhiannon Giddens, Cecile McLaurin Salvant, and Janelle Monet. Special thanks to Colin Yeager, Maurice Wallace, Andrew Parker, and Derek Barron. And thanks once again to Daphne Brooks. Find us on the web at seminarpod.org. The CCA is at cca.rutgers.edu. Thanks for listening to the seminar. Till next time.